Hi everyone and welcome to For Fact's Sake, Ferret's podcast about misinformation and fact checking. I'm your host, Ali Bryan, and alongside me as always, my co-host, Paul Dobson. How are you, Paul? I'm good, Ali. Yeah, I'd like to say I'm nearly done my Christmas shopping, but that would be true. Although I have thought about it, which is obviously the first step in the process. Yeah, we all know that journalists work better under the white hot pressure of deadlines so i'm absolutely sure that you'll be fine my family will be pleased to hear that uh, what have we got coming up on the podcast this week so yeah this week we'll be looking at a topic we've actually covered on another angle before on the podcast that being the situation in gaza we are speaking to fiona o'brien who's the uk bureau director at reporters without borders about the impact that the killing of journalists in gaza is having and how that's affected the information that can get out of the region and allowed misinformation and state narratives to flourish but as always with this podcast we've got a jarring change of tone so um, what's coming up in paul's curiosity corner this week paul that's right ali we are discussing a trademark ferret fact check from a few years ago now Mm. about why santa is red and whether he drinks giant coca-cola has anything to do with that so shall we get into it let's do it My name is Fiona O'Brien and I'm the UK Bureau Director for Reporters Without Borders. We're here to talk today about the situation in Gaza and the number of journalists that have been uh, killed uh, while reporting on the conflict. Reporters Without Borders put the number of journalists so far in this escalation of the conflict at over 60 and we know that dozens have been arrested and many other people have been threatened and assaulted. Why are we seeing such wide-scale attacks on journalists in the area? Yeah, you're absolutely right. The numbers are really horrifying and to a large extent speak speak for themselves. So in Gaza itself, over 65 journalists, at least 65 journalists have been killed. Um, 15 of those directly related to their work. Um, And then uh, four journalists have been killed in Israel on the 7th of October in those Hamas attacks. Uh, Three journalists have been killed in Lebanon. So the numbers are, are really high. Um, One of the reasons for that is just the nature of the indiscriminate bombing in Gaza. Um, You know, You've seen the overall civilian death toll, which again is 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 staggeringly high. Um, so the kind of bombardments that we're seeing are indiscriminate by nature, um, and therefore afford none of the protections which civilians and journalists are considered civilians in in conflict zones should be afforded under international humanitarian law. Could you just expand a little bit on the idea of um, you said nineteen have been killed during the course of their work? How does yeah, that, what's the definition between those two things? Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a small distinction. Obviously, one of the things, and I'm sure we'll talk about this a bit a bit more um, later. One of the things that makes Gaza unprecedented is the fact that journalists can't escape. You know, there's no mm. way out. People yeah. are trapped there. So it's a it's a conflict unlike others. Anyway, um, we do make a distinction at RSF while we record and document every journalist death in a conflict zone. Um, when you were talking about things like international prosecution, so for example, we've already filed one complaint to the International Criminal Court dealing with specific cases. In those sorts of scenarios, it's important to be able to show that the journalism was the reason for death. Right. Um, so we make that distinction. Unsurprisingly, given those numbers you've just outlined, there have been a number of claims that journalists are being intentionally targeted by the Israeli army. Is this true? Is there evidence for that? And if and if it is, why are they targeting journalists? Israel says it doesn't target journalists, um, mm-hmm. but it also has said very clearly, it's made it clear to international news organisations that it can't protect them. 
um, yeah. even though again under international humanitarian law um, journalists and journalism premises shouldn't should not be targeted mm-hmm. um, it's really difficult to um, prove intentionality um, but there are some things that make us very worried so uh, particular cases um, in the south of Lebanon on the 13th of October there was a Reuters journalist called Issam Abdullah who was killed um, and he was out working with colleagues from various news organizations and they were out in the open. They'd been filming for, for quite a period of time, mm. clearly marked as press. Their vehicles were marked as press. They were wearing the correct protective gear. But investigations by us, by Reuters, um, have shown that he was killed by an Israeli tank shell. And there were two strikes in very quick succession, just 37 seconds between them. So that strike, which killed Issam and wounded six other journalists, was clearly targeted. What we can't say is if they were targeted because they were journalists, but we know that they were clearly labelled as journalists. They were doing their job. They were out in the open. They weren't, you know, doing anything wrong. Um, So cases like that are very worrying. In our ICC complaint um, that we filed at the end of October, we also cited the um, deliberate total or partial destruction of at least 50 um, premises of media outlets. Now, those are media outlets, they're pre- they're, the location of their premises is well known in Gaza. You know, mm-hmm. these, aren't, yeah. these aren't secret locations. Um, and again, it seems that those were targeted. Um, so those things all point to a, a very worrying situation for us. Has there been a sort of conflation between journalists and activists? I know at the start of the conflict, Israel claimed that some of the freelance journalists had prior knowledge of the attack in Israel. So the story you're referring to, again, really worrying, and it comes under that sort of um, discussion around targeting. What happened was an Israeli NGO called Honest Reporting had published totally unfounded information, you know, unsubstantiated information suggesting that journalists from international news organizations, I think it was AP, Reuters, the New York Mm -hmm. Times and CNN had somehow had prior knowledge of what was going to happen on the 7th of October. Um, They were eventually, the the news organizations responded very strongly and this NGO retracted its statement and apologized and said, look, we didn't have any information to prove this and, you know, should never have published that in the first place. So number one, that shouldn't have been published in the first place, but really worryingly, that was then picked up um, by Israeli politicians and really yeah. inflammatory rhetoric emerged in response. So from Benjamin Netanyahu's office, he talked about journalists as accomplices in crimes against humanity. Yeah. And there's an Israeli politician called Danny Danon who used the word, you know, elimination and said, we're going to hunt them down along with the terrorists. So really horrendous rhetoric. And of course, what that does is create a permissive environment in which security forces, but also civilians feel enabled to attack journalists. Mm. So we've had you reference earlier um, arrests. There have been at least 15 arrests in the West Bank. We're seeing increasing instances of confrontation between the not just in Gaza, but um, through the West yeah. Bank, through through Israel, in Lebanon, between Israeli security forces and journalists and also civilians. There was a horrible incident in the south of Israel where photographers were out working and they were attacked by a civilian who, you know, broke the arm of one. I mean, really proper, proper, yeah. um, proper attacks. And that sort of inflammatory political rhetoric which targets journalists rhetorically is equally dangerous. What is the rationale behind targeting journalists? It's really difficult to to prove intentionality um, and it you know it goes without saying that covering conflicts is really dangerous Um, but there are many things that can be done to protect journalists and where that's not happening um, obviously it becomes a lot more dangerous and we see the sorts of numbers that we're seeing in Gaza. The Hamas-Israel conflict illustrates just how much information has become part of contemporary warfare. 
Um, I think one of the most striking things about what we're seeing coming out in terms of news coverage of Gaza is that shutting off of the um, Gaza Strip to international journalists, you know, the limiting of the ability of journalists to document. Journalists have a really important role to play in conflict. They're there as independent witnesses, writing down what happens, broadcasting what happens, telling the world, you know, as the, as the eyes and ears of the world. And the fact that Israel won't let international journalists yeah. in is really significant here because it limits our, you know, the world's ability to find out what's happening and tells you just what value Israel sees in being able to control that narrative. On this podcast, we've talked before about the impact of journalism and there being on the ground journalism in Gaza on like limiting the spread of misinformation. As you say, this has been as much an information war as a physical war. And there's we've had a lot of dueling kind of state narratives without a lot of alternative questioning narratives being given. I mean, is that because of the targeting of journalists and that because journalists are finding it so dangerous to work in the area? I mean, I would say that journalists still in Gaza trying to work are doing an extraordinary job mm. still getting pictures out and images yeah. under the most horrific circumstances. I mean, we can talk about the sort of challenges they're facing. Uh, I'll give you one example just to illustrate it. You may have seen the, the case of the Al Jazeera bureau chief in Gaza, a man named Wild Ahdur. Early yeah. in the conflict, he lost his wife, his son, his daughter, his grandson, carried on reporting. Um, just a few days ago, he was under attack in Khan Yunus in, a, in an attack there. Um, a camera operator from Al Jazeera died in that attack. He was very badly injured and he has continued reporting since. Misinformation flourishes where there's a, you know, where, the, where there's a vacuum. In a really um, crude measure, the fact that you've, you know, 65 fewer journalists are there to cover it has an enormous impact yeah. on the coverage yeah. that's coming out. But beyond that, the journalists who are there are part of the civilian population that is being attacked. So they also have had to flee their homes. They have, think of, you know, the basic essentials to be able to do good journalism. They don't have good internet access. They have, Israel has prevented um essential materials from coming in you know the protective gear the yeah. the technological gear that they need to be able to do their job they don't have access to that they're also struggling with access to sanitation to water to food on yeah. top of that think of the psychological toll of losing that many colleagues and losing family members and you know that when we speak to journalists in gaza they are so exhausted most journalists who cover conflicts will you know we usually kind of do it on rotation so you'll spend some time in a conflict zone and then come out to recharge the journalists in Gaza have been stuck there since the 7th of October. Um, they haven't, they can't sleep properly. You know, they grab an hour's sleep here and there, but they're psychologically and physically utterly, utterly exhausted, which of course makes, makes continuing their job all the harder. Um, mm. So all of these things put together, that blockade, the prevention of international journalists coming in and just rendering the task of those journalists who are still there as difficult as it could possibly be, all limit the amount of information that can come out of Gaza. As you say, journalists are considered civilians in war, but there has been sort of an indiscriminate approach to civilian life throughout this war. Journalists in some ways are, are, are more likely to be a specific target. So what protections should be in place in the view of reporters without borders? So there are a number of things that can happen, um, you know, to make this situation better to, to protect journalists. So there should be clear lines of communication between Israeli army forces, security forces and journalists, for example, so that we understand, you know, journalists understand where, where it's safe to be and where it's not. Um, the Rafah crossing, we've been calling for the Rafah crossing to be open so that journalists can leave Gaza safely yeah. um, and come back in. We've been calling for access for international journalists. 
We've been calling for journalists to be able to access the resources they need to do their job so that we can freely get protective material in, that we can get professional equipment in to give them the essentials that they need. Um, we've also been calling for safe zones, so sort of areas of shelter where journalists can go and work and know that they will not come under any kind of attack while they're there working. So if all of those things could be put in place, what you do get then is a situation where, of course, underlying, you know, a conflict zone is dangerous, but you have a, a certain level of protection in place for journalists and for their places of work as per the Geneva Conventions that allow them to document the conflict as they as they should be. I wondered whether the relatively muted response to the to the murder of Jamal Khashoggi back in 2018 by the Saudi government from from other governments has emboldened regimes to target journalists. Yeah, it's a really good point. I mean, I think anything that gives a message of impunity to those that harm journalists is really damaging and emboldening, as you say. I mean, sticking with the the, the region with um the conflict in now Gaza. Um, if you think about the death of Shireen Abu Akleh, another name that might be well known, yeah. she was yeah. killed in, in the West Bank. She was um, at work in Janine in May 2022 um, and was killed. All investigations since then have, even the IDF zone, have pointed to the fact that she was almost certainly killed by a, an IDF soldier. Yet no one has been held accountable for that. Mm. And in Israel, mm. Um, and the Palestinian territories, that has happened again and again and again. You know, I mentioned that RSF has filed an ICC complaint already with regards to the current phase of conflict, but that's the third time we've filed a, an ICC complaint since 2018. Um, and time and again, we just see that there is no accountability for those that are, that, are, that are harming journalists in this way. And of course, that sends a message out that it doesn't matter. So Ali, you are renowned as an observant man, so you may have noticed that it is the festive season. So I thought mm. we could make this a Christmassy edition of Paul's Curiosity Corner, uh, put some cheer on this episode of the podcast. Uh, so in particular, I thought we could take a look at an old claim that I believe you are actually the foremost global expert on. Yeah. And that is namely that Santa Claus was first dressed in his distinctive red suit by drinks Goliath Coca-Cola. So first of all, can you tell us where this claim comes from and how it has been stoked by social media? A, a claim that sort of has been going around for many, many years. We first fact-checked it in 2017, at which point it was already a well-kent claim that had been made that Santa's red suit was as a result of Coca-Cola putting him in that suit. We had hoped that uh, since we did this fact-check in 2017 that that would be would have helped to stamp out but we still see it regularly i saw it in an article uh, on a recipe website just a few this came out just a few days ago um so yeah unfortunately it seems to be one of those uh, zombie claims which are somewhat unkillable okay so did santa's costume change color and if so what color was it initially and if it did change color was coke responsible this kind of comes back to like how depictions of santa claus have changed over the years the thing that we could say definitively is that there were a number of depictions of Santa Claus before Coca-Cola started using Santa Claus uh, that were red. Obviously, if we go back into the sort of history of uh, Santa Claus as a figure, it's sort of linked to a monk named St. Nicholas, who's believed to be born in Turkey at 280 AD, who was known for generosity. And there was like these stories that would go about of his charitable acts and gift giving. And that combined with the modern day 
personification of Father Christmas, who's associated with festive merriment in the UK and Santa Claus, into this figure we know today as being mm-hmm. Santa Claus. That sort of modern image of Father Christmas and Santa Claus was popularized in Victorian times. There were a number of poems and short stories and cartoons which uh, which were connected to these poems that started to um, develop this idea of him as being kind of jolly, white-bearded man. The cartoonist Thomas Nast had a really big impact in kind of creating the modern characters of Santa Claus. Cartoon he did for Harper's Weekly in 1863, which, yeah, has him in the big beard and the hat and looking like the Santa which you would recognize today. The question of when Santa became red is a difficult one to pinpoint exactly. And we know that there are a number of popular depictions of Santa wearing red in the 19th century. There's a advert for a confectionery company called Sugar Plums, and he was on the, a magazine called Puck, had him on the front cover in the red gear. Also, another illustration of Thomas Nast called Merry Old Santa had the kind of plump man in a red suit. Coca-Cola kind of came into things in about the 1930s. They hired an artist to create a character of Santa Claus to be used in festive campaigns, and they conveniently used a red suit because obviously Coca-Cola has a red branding. Yeah. At that point, they started to popularize that image, but it wasn't Coca-Cola that actually put him in that in the first place. That's all we've got time for for this week's episode of For Fact's Sake. And that's all we've got time for for this whole year. Uh, thanks so much to everyone for listening across the year. It's been uh, our best year ever, although technically it's been our first year. Um, we were particularly excited by Spotify Wrapped and everyone who uh, finding out who actually listens to it and everyone who had it in their top podcasts. Um, Paul, what can people do to keep following the ferret and to help us uh, expand our podcasts and all of our coverage? Well, obviously, you can sign up to be a member of the Ferrets Investigative Journalism Cooperative for just £5 a month. Um, We also obviously have social media accounts which you can follow our work on. So we're at Ferret Scott on Twitter. We are just the Ferret on Facebook and Instagram. And we also have a LinkedIn page. It's also the Ferret. And there is our community forum where members can interact with our journalists. It's community.ferret.scot. You should also keep an eye out next week for a series of wrap-ups we're doing of our work over the course of the year, um, which, yeah, will highlight some of the really impactful stuff we've done this year. It's been an incredibly successful year, not only for the podcast, but for the wider ferret as well. Exactly. We will be back uh, with the podcast after some well-earned rest over Christmas and a bit of work to book some new guests uh, at the end of January. So... Stay tuned and thanks for sticking with us for the whole year. Bye. Bye.